I mean, so sometimes it bounces up in volume a little bit uh, after what a was couple that? of seconds. Did Let you, me see if it's good. Did you, hit, did you hit a bell? No, no, that was just a, a cup hitting against another cup on the altar as I'm doing this thing. Oh, I'm like all set to hydrate myself. That's got to be some kind of euphemism right there. One cup hitting another cup on the altar. <laughs> It seems like that would like I would have a realization of emptiness and fall on the floor, mm-hmm. and then yeah, yeah you, you never see me again. I just disappear in a cloud of dust. <laughs> Welcome to Gin and Tantra, spirituality with a twist. The podcast that takes tantrism, Buddhism, Taoism, Sufism, Kabbalism, shamanism, Chinese medicineism <laughs> and all of the other isms we've been influenced by and blends them into a tall crisp cool cocktail your spirit has been longing I want for you to get together. now isn't that refreshing I want you to get Hey, fellow GNTers, those of us who like our spirituality with the twist. So Daniel and I are back to recording after a little uh, mini hiatus. Um, maybe we had a little week off. We have a, a number of things going on uh, as far as episodes to record and we'll have out for you. So we have our intro to spirituality episodes on this thing called Stages of the Path. So we're kind of giving a kind of a foundational present- presentation of spirituality, which is something that was requested by uh, listeners of the show to kind of set up something like that. Interested in people, interesting for people who are just getting into this stuff. And I think interesting for other people too. Uh, we have other episodes planned as well. Uh, Daniel has a long-term request on styles of meditation that we should do. So that's in the, that's in the works. And we have one that was a Daniel epiphany on comic books and spirituality. Hmm, that should be interesting. Mm-hmm. So deep, uh, deep and interesting. So, yeah. Having your way and hopefully other good interviews. So we're arranging a lot of guests. So that's where we're at. But we were recording these episodes on love, relationships, uh, and spiritual practice and the great Rumi. Um, and so we thought we'd just do one last thing kind of around that uh, from an Asian point of view, looking at those issues, maybe not just from a Rumi point of view, from how, but how they're talked about in Buddhism and Taoism a little bit. And, uh, you know, Daniel, I thought that interesting place to start with that was just how I think for a lot of people in American culture, there's this idea that Buddhism and Asian spirituality has all of this idea of non-attachment and sort of Mm non-emotionality and almost like, uh, you know, a virtue of not connecting or something. And so obviously in our show, we're trying to do something different for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that that idea, like many of the ideas that we're trying to, you know, illuminate on this show are probably incorrectly interpreted. Um, or, or not so well interpreted in English, number one, but even even beyond the trans the port the problem of translation, is the problem of misunderstanding. And so, what it is that we mention this very regularly, but one of the things that we're trying to do is maybe more acutely address some of these uh, misunderstandings that that get, I don't know, taken up into the lexicon of society as just sort of their normal way of understanding things and so with non-attachment it gets often interpreted i don't care you know and i'm not bound to anything i'm quote unquote not attached as if it's as if you're free because of that thing but i don't even know if the 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 
the discussion even goes to the part of freedom. It's just, I'm not attached. Therefore I'm cold. I'm, I'm detached, which is not the same as being not attached. Yeah. That's, that's so true. Even when I was doing the show notes, I was like that word detached popped in here. And like, I just feel yes. like something interesting is happening. And of course these are all legit traditions. It's not like trying to like, um, I don't know, cast any shade on them or anything like that. Cause they're legit traditions, but it almost seems what happened was there's these monastic traditions and then a lot of people in the West get interested in these traditions that are monastic, but they're living the lives of lay people, you know, mm-hmm. so their, their lives are just different and they're, they're styling, they're following a style of practice that has to do with monastic life. You know, if you're a nun or a monk and, and it, that's what they sort of associate. And that, that detached thing comes up because it's almost like you get this vibe that like my, my spiritual progress is, is measured by how non-emotionally affected I am or something like that. Like that's a, that's yes. like the sign of progress or something. Even in kind of like the mindful traditions, you have that kind of thing going. Yeah. On. Yeah. I mean, I have, you know, I have some, you know, yoga teachers and um, very, very regularly they say the goal is to move beyond. I mean, the goal is to move beyond duality, but in, in their sense, they'll say duality, meaning positivity and negativity to a place of neutrality. But it's, that they, they insinuate that you are to trans almost transcend happiness as if that's just a, a stop, you know, a stopping point, you know, a waypoint in the, in the road to neutrality. And while I understand the highlighting of duality in the mind that I'm happy about this. Oh, I'm not happy about that. Now my life is bad. Oh, but I'm happy about this thing. Now my life is good to kind of move beyond the kind of like extreme fluctuations on things to a point where you're not so at the end of the whip, so to speak. Yeah, that's a good point. However, I think it, it takes on this air of not caring, you know, and of being distanced. And that I don't, I personally don't think that that's what the traditions are, are, are trying to pass forward. And, and really that's the case for my argument is that everything is the, the, the community is equally as important as your teacher, right? As the teachings itself, right? So Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Sangha being the community, Buddha meaning the, you know, the internal or, or eternal kind of being that, that's residing within one. And so they're viewed equally. And so to just completely detach yourself from your community, from your Sangha would need a lead, you know, forget about, you know, 33% of what it is that we're trying to be focusing on. Yeah. And like in that case, it's kind of like the Sangha isn't even just the people you practice with. The Sangha is like, kind of like everybody right mm-hmm. and like all the living things mm-hmm. around you yeah so it's an interesting it's an interesting little translation thing you're right of like an intellectual type not just the words but the ideas that are happening i have like one person always pops in my mind with this and he's a very sincere person and you know he's done these sort of more vipassana mindfulness retreats and of course they're very good uh, there's no there's no judgment of any of that tradition either but i could see in him he has this notion kind of cooking there that you know he's somehow at his, you know, spiritual best when he's like non-emotional, non-detached, non-affected or something. And like, so it's, yeah, I, I, that seemed like a good place to start talking about this, just trying to just like at least address some of that. And the fact that that doesn't represent like the whole tradition for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. kind of a story from uh, Zen about this, which is kind of a good one. So I'm a little bit in the storyteller, Joseph Campbell mode for this particular episode, but it's a, it's a good story. And I'm, yeah, I'll be interested to hear your reaction to it too, Daniel. So there's a, it's a Zen story. So it's, it's in Japan. There's an older lady and uh, she decides that she has, she's going to let this hut that she has at the back of her little property be like a meditation hut for this local monk. 
So he's in there, he's meditating away and she's like supporting him, you know, and at some point she has this idea, well, I got to see if he's making any progress at all. So um, she has this kind of, this is a very Japanese story, but she has this idea, let me send, and maybe it's her niece or something like that, you know, like a, 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 a woman in there to kind of interact with him and, you know, and see what he does. <laughs> so she goes in, you know, I think maybe she serves him some tea. I don't know, maybe she like even gives him a little bit of a hug or something like that, you know, and uh, then she leaves. And then the old lady comes in later on and says, well, you know, my niece came in. What did you feel about that? And he says, I felt nothing. I was completely unaffected and whatever. And then she, like Japanese sensory, she loses her shit and just says, get out of here. You're a terrible monk. Why am I supporting you? That's not the purpose of anything. <laughs> she just kicks him out because his response was that, wow. you know? And I was like, oh, that's such a great story. So they call that sometimes like Deadwood Zen. Um, in some of the dead tradi mm. Zen traditions, like you're just supposed to make yourself like a piece of wood or something like that. To just that's not the that's not the point of spiritual practice either. You know, turn yourself into like mm -mm. a dead log. You know, so that's a you know that's mm -hmm. kind of a, a great story to kind of like show the contrary side of that from a from a Zen point of view. Yeah, mm -hmm. have you heard that one before or no? No, I I never have, but I I quite I quite like the twist. Yeah, definitely has <laughs> spirituality with a twist. Um, uh -huh. So, okay. So in the tantric traditions, this is kind of interesting to me too, because I think as I've watched this in the West, there definitely tends to be an emphasis placed on like sexuality for sure. And outside oh, yeah. of the context, even of love, though, you get the part where it's sort of like um, couples, couples relationship building stuff too. But I guess we push that to the side for a little bit. The other side tends to be a big emphasis on sex. And there certainly is like sexual rituals in the tantras and tantric practice. And yeah, we're going to have our stories on, or we're going to have our episodes on sexuality too. You know, we're doing this one first. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like a good order to do it first because you should talk about the relationship part before you talk about the sex part. Um, I know you and yeah. I agree on that. Um, and there's this famous mm -hmm. ritual called the ritual of the five M's where you kind of do things that are kind of verboten in the culture. You drink alcohol, you eat these grains you aren't supposed to eat, you eat some meat. You're in India, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And there's a thing about having, uh, you know, sex with someone outside of your caste. So you're sort of breaking a social taboo. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we'll talk about that kind of stuff more. But you could walk away in the West with this feeling like, well, they're just talking about sex all the time. But there definitely is in the Tantras this feeling of like relationship, you know, and there are like Tantric couple stories. And it seemed good to kind of balance out the roomy thing by sharing a couple of these. What do you think? Mm -hmm. I think that the ritual of, of five M's could be handled um, by just, you know, taking a, <laughs> a homeless person into a McDonald's bathroom. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of like, well, that's, that's the, that what's really interesting about that is it depends on like what you think is taboo. So, I mean, that will get back to that thing. That's really a question of right doing stuff. I mean, you could have sex with somebody in the bathroom at a club or something. That's not a taboo necessarily in the culture. You know, like people might no. do that kind of thing occasionally. So it just depends on what the taboo is. Right. So it's you sort of. Mm. But OK, now yeah, we'll uh, we'll uh, uh, we'll semi shelf that one. Right. For future stuff. But yeah, it's true. Mm. Right. Um, but so I think the relationship stories are kind of good because otherwise you don't really hear these too often. So the one that I kind of like is from Gantapada one of these great Indian, you know, uh, uh, Buddhist tantric yogis, they call them Mahasiddhas. And uh, again, I'll, I'll play the Joseph Camberwell. I'll tell the little, I'll tell the little story. 
And who has like um, some kind of meditation technique to the point where they have extraordinary powers of meditation. And Maha means great. So it means sort of like a great practitioner. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a tradition of these great Mahasiddhas in, uh, in the Buddhist tradition of India. There's kind of 84 famous ones, and I'll maybe share a couple of the little stories from them because they're kind of relevant to our discussion here today. Um, okay, so the Gantapada story, I mean, actually, it's, I kind of do practices mm -hmm. that presumably come down from this Gantapada, so it kind of speaks to me. Uh, so Gantapada story is there's mm. this Gantapada, and he's this you know, Indian yogi kind of traveling mystic. So it goes back a little bit to the Shams of Tabriz thing. That's, I think, why the story is kind of cool, because it reminds a little bit of Shams traveling around. And he settles into this cave to do his meditations. And there's kind of the local king. And the local king kind of hears word that there's this practitioner in the hills nearby or whatever and wants to meet him. This is a kind of a recurring theme in these Asian stories, too, where there's a king who tries to sort of get whoever the practitioner is, uh, a tantric Buddhist or a Taoist or whatever, tries to kind of pull them into the court life you know, kind of pull them into the, the service of the king or at least relationships with the king. And then, you know, you get different versions of the stories, but a lot of times people reject this. You know, whoever's being pursued says no. Uh, so that's what happens in this story. Gantapada says no. And the king gets really offended, as kings do, and uh, decides that he wants to do something to take revenge on Gantapada. So his idea is to do something to embarrass him. So he, he's going to send someone to seduce Gantapada, and then it will make him look weak in his spiritual practice. And I guess like a fraud or a charlatan. So that's the scheme. And uh, uh, the king reaches out to sort of a local brothel owner, uh, this woman. And she wants to send someone who she can trust. So the story is kind of odd. It's an old story. She sends her daughter which sounds old because it's an old story, but that could probably happen on like an HBO show if you were watching like Game of Thrones or something like that. <laughs> so, so that happens in the old story. So mm -hmm. the daughter goes up and, you know, the interesting thing is the kind of Rumi Shams of Tabriz moment in the story, which is the twist. When she meets Gantapada, there's all of a sudden this instant recognition that there's something very deep between the two of them. And, you know, they come together through this sort of circuitous routes of fate to meet and what they really decide is that they want to become sort of like a spiritual couple together so Gantapada is going to accept but he's doing it in a sort of a completely different way that has nothing to do with like being embarrassed you know for you know poor behavior and so they become they develop this relationship and they become this sort of couple together and this of course infuriates the king and the whole plan falls apart and uh and he's complaining about this. And, you know, I think there's a scene where they're going to confront Gatapada. But um, in the end, what happens is, and it's, you know, it's a tantric story. So in the intimacy of Gatapada and uh, this woman, there's all of this bliss created. And it kind of starts to flood the whole valley around the kingdom. And everyone starts to be affected by this bliss. And I think in some stories, it's like a nectar flooding through so everyone could drown in it, the blissful nectar. But in that moment, because it's affecting everything so deeply, they kind of realize, mm -hmm. oh, this Gantapada and this woman are the real deal, and everyone changes their mind in the story. So a little different version than the Rumi story where Sham seems to lose his head, um, but uh, you know, it does have that feeling to it. So I think it's kind of one of those kind of great, great kind of uh, uh, tantric Buddhist stories that kind of shows something. And you know what I find really interesting in it too is, and I know you're going to agree with this, mm -hmm. and I think it fits in with the shamanic practice too, is that once someone starts practicing, in this case, 
it's, uh, you know, in the context of love and sexuality and intimacy, but regardless, whether it's with that or just someone having a strong meditative practice, meditative practice, that influences the whole community, right? That starts to spread out. Like you're talking about the love of community just energetically spreads out to all, all the people around. And I mean, that's an interesting part about spiritual practice too, that affects people around you, even when you're not, even when you're not interacting with them personally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and plus people are interested, I think, whenever they know somebody who, well, not everybody, but at least there's a curiosity, you know, when someone who is doing whatever it might be that is outside of the norm, you know, work and, and have a little hobby here and there and repeat when someone sort of dedicates themselves to something, even if it's not necessarily the most virtuous thing, there's always something I think attractive to someone's dedication you know, and so that dedication has a has a magnetism to it. And when you, you know, put that dedication, that effort towards something that is beneficial to oneself and one's, you know, surroundings, then it has positive effects, you know, sometimes just out of the Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because I think a lot of these stories are, are there to be kind of inspiring to make you feel like, wow, that's someone doing something cool that is mm -hmm. maybe coloring outside the lines a little bit, but coloring outside the lines in a beautiful way. And so it's, I think it's meant to inspire. And then you can kind of take that whatever direction is right for your own life. But I think that's the idea. I mean, that's the, that's the idea of the podcast too, as mm. far as it goes, right? Uh, there's one of my favorite Japanese Zen masters and poets called EQ. And I almost would want to do a whole show on him, like maybe what we did for Rumi, we would do with his work too, because I think it's really worthwhile looking at it. So another, another show idea to toss into the pod of show ideas coming up. Mm. But um, he's this very eccentric Zen monk mm -hmm. and definitely doesn't show anything resembling like uh, non-attachment or would detachment, you know. Um, so there's a lot to him. We won't be able to talk about all of this because we're just focusing on his the relationship and love part of his life. But he definitely there's a sexuality part. He writes a lot about sexuality and how it affects him spiritually. So he's really interesting for our show. There's definitely like an alcohol part. <laughs> <laughs> as far as gin and tantra goes you know mm. um uh, but in the mix of that the midst of all of that there's also this very serious and sincere sincere zen practice so he's kind of a fascinating character and uh as far as japanese culture goes he's also kind of an interesting folk hero so he's this very kind of controversial person but he's there's sort of versions of his stories that uh trickle down to kids cleaned up <laughs> And so he's, he's presented as a kid as being this sort of mischievous character who's always sort of like trickster style, outsmarting his teachers and the Shogun. And so mm -hmm. he's sort of like mm -hmm. uh, a lovable trickster. And I've never seen it, but now I'm a little bit curious. Maybe I'll watch it before we do one of our upcoming episodes. But there's even like a, an animated TV series, kind of like an anime thing about him, which I don't know if I can get on Netflix, but I give it a tumble. So if anyone knows anything about that, you want mm. to put something in the show comments. If you watch Iku-san, uh, I'd be curious to know and uh, know where you saw it but in any case um uh for the love part i mean i don't know how you are daniel i love a good trickster are you into that too <laughs> yeah oh yeah of course there's that that's you know that's kind of like yeah. they're almost the linchpin of any story you know um i mean because they make i guess it, you were just talking about someone know, being they, a they trickster before when someone's doing outside the box even if it isn't that good everyone's a little bit intrigued that's a trickster right yeah 
Yeah. I mean, anybody who takes the, you know, like I, I said, I wasn't going to use this word, but now we're going to, I'm going to use it narrative, right? One of the uh, stupid popular words of the day, right? That some journal, somebody wrote and now everybody uses on a regular basis, but you know, somebody that, that sort of dances inside and outside of the narrative, you know, seemingly without direction. Uh, they have certainly their own direction, but they're not necessarily following that of uh, one, one way or another, like the, most of the other people are yeah yeah um but but genuinely right it's not just being contrarian to be contrarian because now you're following in line with all the other contrarians like a true trickster does you know <laughs> things that don't fit <laughs> like they're just they're just there to kind of just like throw a monkey wrench in the plan and a and a real trickster just well, i think in the eq stories he's kind of like a trickster watching, with an yeah. agenda kind of you know like he's actually trying to like shake people out of their their mm their torpor and their stupor or their rigidity where it's not appropriate. So he purposely is doing things, but you know, he has a Zen agenda going on. It's like, it's kind of a fascinating thing. So I guess previewing our comic books episode, I don't want to put you on the spot because maybe you don't have an immediate answer because it's not an easy question, but do you have a famous, do you have a favorite comic book trickster? Well, you know, the obvious one uh, would be dead. Uh oh, I lost you for a second. We, uh, we interfered uh, a little funny thing. What'd you say? I said the obvious one would be Deadpool. Ah, uh, yes. Okay, that's it. You're tr that's so true. That was just like setting it up on a tee to get right. hit. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's probably yeah, my, I mean, probably that my is... favorite too. So for those who don't know, Deadpool is a Marvel character, right? There's Marvel and DC and then a whole lot of other smaller comic book companies, but we'll stick with the Marvel one for right now. Uh, Deadpool is a character who frequently, what they refer to as uh, breaks the fourth wall. And the fourth wall meaning... Uh, he talks directly to the audience. And so he's this character that's sort of an anti-hero, right? He's kind of does some good things and goes crazy and kills a bunch of people, but, you know, still does good somehow. Um, and is frequently making fun of the comic book process in the middle of it. And so he's kind of in it, but kind of out of it. And that's what makes him very unique because he's one of the only few characters um, who does that pretty much on a regular basis and is constantly joking and telling jokes and insulting all the rest of the characters in their extreme seriousness of their own particular stories. He's sort of laughing around all of it um, at the, while being part of it. So I think that's kind of like a really good example um, of a trickster. Yeah. You know, it's really fascinating about that too. And so when we do the episode, there's two ones I definitely want to talk about. I want to talk about Deadpool kills the Marvel universe. <laughs> Which one? One, one or two? Uh, the first one is the only one I know, but if you want to give okay. me, I'll check out the sequel if I need to, you know, but yeah. the first one, like, because part of what he's doing there, which is so Buddhist tantric is he's like treating it all like theater. So there's this thing you can treat the world like tantric theater in a way, because it, at a certain level, it's real and yet it's not right. So his attitude mm -hmm. towards the comic book world is like, this isn't real. <laughs> he seems to know it. And none of the other characters, Captain America and Spider-Man, whoever even really seem to fully get that. So he breaks mm -hmm. the wall and he's acknowledging like, this is just a story, you know, which is pretty <laughs> fabulous, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which is kind of like, it's so true for our show because it is just a story. You can write your own myth. Why? Because it's just a story. That's it. <laughs> That's Jin and Tantra. And the other one I want to talk about for sure, and this is the more nefarious trickster potentially, but I definitely want to talk about the old uh, Arkham Asylum graphic novel. Sure. And the way the Joker's a trickster in that one. Because mm -hmm. the Joker's a trickster and he's presented in different ways, but in Arkham Asylum, it's kind of more like, it's a little bit like the Heath Ledger thing. There's a little bit of like divine madness or something, 
Mm-hmm. But uh, I think even in Arkham, Arkham Asylum, there's even more like the playing up of the divine madness. And mm-hmm. uh, if, you, if, if people haven't seen this thing, it's like an old school graphic novel. I think it's one of the one of the ones you know that I really kind of love. Uh, um, and it's uh, it's characters in there. There actually is Carl Jung as a character pops up in the scene, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think Aleister Crowley pops up in the scene. <laughs> so for people who are spiritual, it's kind of a funny thing, too. All right. So we did our trickster thing. So uh, Iku is definitely a trickster, our Zen monk we were talking about, who shows up in his anime series. See, it's another cartoon thing. It's all coming together. There's That's always it. a method to the Jin and Tantra structure, mm. madness. Um, so it's interesting. At the end of his life, like he does have a lot of experience, you know, sexuality and women. He's, he's writing poems about this his whole life. But at the end of his life, he, he seems to deeply fall in love with a, a blind singer whose name is Mori. Uh, which I guess in Japanese means forest. And he has lots of poems that he dedicates to her just out of his love. And he talks a lot about how loving her impl- influences him as a spiritual person. And I guess when we do the answer, when we do the episode of it, we can do a lot of his poems. So I thought I would just share one little bit of this just to give the feeling that he's talking about. So he says, day and night, I cannot keep you out of my thoughts. In the darkness on an empty bed, the longing deepens. I dream of us joining hands, exchanging words of love, but then the dawn bell shatters my reverie and rends my heart. So the dawn bell would be like the meditation bell. So, you know, it's kind of, he talks that way, you know, and it's, he's obviously very accepting of the fact that people are going to have these kinds of emotions and they're going to feel these kinds of loves. And it's part of your life and part of your spiritual life too. So I, I really, I really like him. And I, I hope we come back to him later on for an episode too. I think he has, he has lots of good stuff to say for us. Yeah, well, let's let's try to get him on the show. <laughs> we'll have to get have to get the Ouija board, and we'll just do the whole thing. <laughs> but yeah, we won't do it. We probably we won't we won't ask we won't ask the typical American questions. What do you think? What's Ruth Gator Ginsburg saying now? We should do you know since we're doing recording the week where she passed away. Yeah, rest in peace. Uh, uh, rest yeah. in peace, man. Uh, so, anyways, yeah, we won't we won't ask him those questions. Yeah, you know? we yeah we won't ask him. Other Ouija board type questions. We'll ask them the deep questions. Uh-huh. No, no. Yeah. 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 We'll keep, we'll keep. We'll keep and the other part that was kind of interesting, I just want to do like one other little bit of his verse, because I think you and I will both relate to this too. It's really not just love for Maury, who he's in love with. He also has a daughter and he has this little verse that goes, watching my four-year-old daughter dance, I cannot break free of her. So there's your attachment thing right there, you know, and he's just acknowledging mm-hmm. that you can't disattached from your dancing four-year-old daughter how could you possibly do that and actually if you did what would be wrong with you on some level you know so um it's Mm -hmm. it's kind of beautiful and a lot of his whole a lot of his whole his whole work and you read it in his poems is is um is just acknowledging attachment as a thing and then talking about like how do you use that to better yourself so certainly in our g and tantra uh, gin and tantra playbook so g and t all right and with Mm -hmm. kids for sure you know, that's like you're going to you're going to love. And I don't know how we can pretend to be. I don't think a spiritual tradition that just preaches non-attachment and detachment is going to work for a bunch of American lay people because we have these attachments and they're just they're just too real. Yeah, they're, they're too real and they they give people's lives meaning. Yeah. You know, and so you're going to you're going to attempt to say, no, there's something that's I don't know, better than that when that's the best for most people, the best experiences they've ever had. Uh, that's, that's a tough sell. And I don't even know if it's a truthful. Yeah, sell, I think, I think like honest. our DNA, our DNA in the show would be, you know, 
well, you can't do it anyways. I mean, that's certainly acknowledged in EQ. He has this thing he calls the red thread of passion. You can't break it. It's just there, you know? Mm. If you try to pretend like you broke it, you're just faking it, you know? Um, so there's that attitude in his poems too. But there's also like the other attitude, which is that, you know, these, these threads of attachment are positives too, that you can use them for your, your own progress. And that's kind of the inspiring thing, I think, about all these stories we want, you know, the whole the idea of this whole set of episodes was just, yeah, use your attachment in positive ways. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I suppose the other side of this is we get to going down the, the, the ending coast run of this would be uh, there's an acknowledgement of the difficulties of love and attachment too in these traditions. So um, again, G and T being, uh, being as honest as we can be, you have to acknowledge that that side, otherwise, you know, it's not all just Gantapada and watching your four-year-old daughter dance. There are stories in tradition of, of uh, you know, people experiencing the pain of love and attachment too. So that's honest, right? So I got a couple of those I can share with you, Dan. You can tell me what you think. Um, yeah. One is Kankaripa. Uh, uh, He's like one of the less known of these Mahasiddhas again, these great tantric uh uh, Buddhist practitioners. Uh, I think I'm doing his name right, but not a real famous one. You don't hear him talked about too much, but he's definitely in the collection of the 84. And I, I looked at it, his story before, so I thought it was good to share with people. So the basic thing of his... And yeah. you know, Eric, everybody, lo- everybody loves the 80s. <laughs> you know? Every, everything 80s. Well, no, <laughs> 84 was like, yeah. That was Reagan's second term. You know, <laughs> lot of, Lots of stuff going on there. That was really, I, really yeah. awesome. I'm being sarcastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. When would like, I don't know what music came out in 1984. What would that be? I wonder. I, I, I kind of know. Well, you would know. You were, you were, you were like, you were probably like, uh, yeah, I was about, I was about two. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't jumping around to Van Halen's jump when you were two. Probably not. No, I don't. Probably, yeah, probably not. not. Your parents probably had better taste than that. Um, so, uh, so this character, he is what they call the heartbroken widower. widower. Um, you know, he's really a lay person. He's not really a Buddhist practitioner. He's, you know, deeply in love with his wife and she dies. And so he's just kind of devastated by this. And it really becomes a question of, like, how does he get over this? And what does he do in response to that? So he does sort of meet his spiritual teacher who says, you know, this happens. You know, this is part of life too. You know, things don't last forever. And, uh, you know, there's an impermanent quality of things. On the other hand, you have all these feelings for uh, this person that you loved. So what you have to do is you have to meditate on her as what they call a Dakini, which is uh, a kind of a Buddhist wisdom goddess. See her in your mind like that, as she's a, 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 a goddess of wisdom and bliss. So meditate on her as if she's sort of formless and a bringer of bliss and take those memories and transform them into something that you know you can use use for yourself now because your emotions are so strong around this so direct this in a new way and the story he spends six years of practice doing this and he sort of starts to achieve this and then you know he has his spiritual breakthroughs so it really like had the stories of how you deal with with you know heartbreak too right and it's hard to get you know the the heartbreaks they talk about are real i kind of like the tradition there too they're not just talking about minor heartbreaks they're talking about you know, real heartbreaks. And, you know, what do you do about that? You know, the other side of love, right? So there's going to be the heartbreak part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think you, I don't think you can do it without honesty. Yeah. Right? Well, that, yeah. That, no, you can't. Cause it's, it's, 
it's part of it. And, you know, most people are fortunate enough to have experienced that in one way or another for, you know, someone or something for sure. You know I mean? Cause the heart, you know, it's the feeling of loss, Yeah. you know, but sometimes it, it, it and it can extend beyond the loss of a, of a relationship. It could be the loss of a, of one particular dream, Yeah. you know, for example, uh, which is very difficult. And I mentioned that because if we're going to talk about, you know, community in Western society, you know, for various reasons, people are not able to achieve one dream that they have set out for themselves. And sometimes that's out of their control. You know, there are certainly plenty of stories in the news of people paying for their kids to be put on some crew team in order to get into college when not everybody has the, you know, a couple hundred grand just to waste to pay off some people to get their kids in school. But we have to be able to do something with that pain of loss. Um, and the, the question is what, you know, what do we do? What do we do with it? And, and more importantly, how do we use that energy towards something that's positive? So we don't just end up, you know, letting it seep away or, or steam away and then leaving us feel vacuous. Yeah. I think that's know? like kind of what great, what's great about, you know, these traditions, whether we're talking about the Rumi one where he becomes this poet and he expresses it all out through his poetry or in this one where he actually gets kind of a spiritual practice to help him transform that you lost mm-hmm. someone you love and, in this case, it's to a death, but, you know, probably all of us have lost a loved one uh, in a relationship that didn't work out or something, and you carry that with you. And, you know, so I, I like that they're acknowledging this and they're stepping in and they're saying, okay, here's ways that you can kind of take those emotions of loss, and, but they use them for yourself towards positive ends, right, which is what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, again, talking about how honest this is, there's a really famous uh, Tibetan, uh, again, Buddhist practitioner, tantric practitioner, and he's a... Uh, famous as the person who brought a lot of the practices from India into Tibet. He did a lot of the translations. He's sometimes called Marpa the translator. So Marpa is a really famous person within these Tibetan traditions. And um, actually, like he has like his most beloved son who dies. So it's a loss of a child in this particular story. Right. Um, and it probably a reality of what happened. It's more recent where you don't get the feeling like it's just a story. And, you know, again, it's how he deals with the loss of a child becomes part of it, too. So, um, Again, it's, you know, acknowledging that there's these losses. If you're going to, if you're going to live the life of a lay person and you're going to, you know, uh, which we all are, and we're going to live these lives, we're going to have passions and attachments. If we're going to watch our four-year-old dog where we, uh, you know, can't break free of them, you know, unfortunately for some of us, there may be tragedies, but um, I think this is acknowledged that these things happen. And I think they're within the spiritual traditions, there are tools that try to help you, try to help you get over this. So um, I think important to say those things, right? And maybe, maybe Eric, we can, you know, so, so we mentioned one, just being kind of practical, you know, practical Dan, the Capricorn. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> we talked about one as, you know, meditating on the loss of a loved one. We'll say for, forget the, forget the romantic partner for a moment here, but the, you know, meditating on the loss of a loved one as sort of like a, a, a an enlightened being, you know, who provides wisdom or something along those lines, some kind of information for the person who is grieving their loss as a way to take some of the energy of that loss and use it towards something positive. Is there, is there anything else that you have, you know, used or, you know, you can share anecdotally just for those who are listening and interested in that particular part? Because sometimes we, we go through things and we highlight them, but, you know, there's, we leave it open for people to kind of, you know, do more research, but then sometimes I like to kind of circle back a little bit and just see if we can get a little bit deeper into it if we can. Yeah, it's kind of a tough one because there's so much with it, but we can kind of give some practices about this, right? So, mm-hmm. um, 
Well, I guess if I talk, like, if I talk most personally, you know, my dad passed away some years ago and I was with him sort of as he was dying. And it's a, a longer story, but I can definitely say on a personal level, you know, being able to meditate and think about him during that window of time meant a lot, you know. Um, mm -hmm. And I did um, sort of ritual meditations around loss and grief, um, but also, mm -hmm. you know, for the benefit of the loved one. So there is mm -hmm. this idea that you can, that you can, again, I'm going to go to the to Tibetan tradition a little bit here, but you can do this in all kinds of traditions, you know, that you can sort of say mantras for the loved one. So it sort of flips it around a little bit where uh, you're not just thinking about your own loss, but again, in, in a spiritual point of view, certainly from a Tibetan, uh, that loved one is going to continue on in some form or another, mm -hmm. right? So you get a lot of like doing things that are dedicating things to that loved one. And mm -hmm. um, now, again, for anyone who's listening, this just depends on what your thing is, you know, but certainly there are, there are simple mantric practices that are kind of available on. There are ones that are, you know, considered to be, you know, more like you need special teachings and stuff like that to do, but there are some that are just kind of like available to people. Um, and so the Tara ones are like this, you know, uh, who's Buddhist wisdom goddess figure again, representing a certain kind of energy, as we mm -hmm. talked about before, you know, you don't have to even think of that as a person, though it's personified, right? Actually, I have the Tara sitting right, yes, right yeah, here on the altar. So like, I got the Tara sitting right there. Yeah. Um, so, um, um, so if you kind of look at the Tara mantra, you know, you could just say that, but you're saying it not only for the benefit of yourself, but for the benefit of that loved one, that then maybe you project even farther mm -hmm. and you say, I'm going to say this also for the benefit of, you know, everyone who has loss or something. Right. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think what happens in that is whether you believe in any of this at all, right. You can take, you know, uh, any attitude you want to this, but what it does do is it kind of changes your mind from just thinking about your own personal loss and it makes it a little bit bigger, right? Uh, first, you can see like what you want to do that's ex still expressing your love for that person that's gone, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, regardless of what your, like say metaphysical beliefs are, you're still putting yourself into a mental state that's still thinking about that person and wanting to help them, right? Wanting to do something that demonstrates your love to them. And that's kind of a powerful experience, right? You know, to be able to flip that mm -hmm. switch. And then I also think that if you can even spread it out more and say, you know, everyone's had this kind of loss you know, everyone's gone through this kind of pain of loss, you know, it's kind of an inevitability. And so let me also say this for everyone else. So I'll say it for myself. I'll say it for my loved one. And I'll say it for everyone who's experienced loss, which is basically everyone. Right. And it, it mm -hmm. um, again, regardless of your, your metaphysics, it just, it changes the mind state that you're in and it's healing. So there's an example of something like yeah. that. Yeah. Om Tara Tu Tara yeah, Tu Re Soha. Even if you just look up that mantra online, you know, and you can look at the visualizations, you know, it's, it's an open practice. Sometimes Tara's talked about as the great mother who wants to sort of bring healing to, to everyone. So you can tap into that feeling. Just a concrete version. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, the other thing that when you were talking, I was, you know, like trying to like think how would I label this part of our conversation? And I think it's what you were talking about, at least is honoring the continuity of life, yeah. you know, of life as a, a, as a sort of a continuum itself and knowing that like your loved ones or what or whatever that that pass we've sort of moved from love of, of, of relationship love to like loved ones at this point um 
as like honoring their their continuity right moving to their whatever it is that's coming next right whatever that might be and and even if you don't believe that there's a next let's just say for those people who don't believe that that you're honoring their time here that's way to do that too Mm -hmm. you know yeah Right. And so you can take the stance. We could take the stance either way. And I do look forward to whenever we have somebody on who doesn't believe anything that we believe in. That'll be a, you know, a fun kind of show. Um, but this is something that, that altered, especially the, the, the more previous, the more ancient kind of traditions really honored people's lives. You know, like um, and I think, you know, like we could look at this now, like the, the marching funerals of uh, in, in New Orleans. Yeah. You know, we're like it's a it's a big party. You know, and it's really, you know, memorials are now a little bit like that, but for most people, it's quite, you know, solemn and somber. And then that's the end of it, right? You know, you, you, in some, some cultures have some stuff, but this is a way in which that we can kind of take that energy of loss and, you know, use it in a, in a different way other than just feeling sort of devastation, you know, because we do want to honor those people with, with that kind of, you know, it'd be nice if they knew how much we cared and hopefully we expressed that when they're alive which this also goes to show just like that idea of the the preciousness of human life to really make use of your time when you're with these people and if they mean something to you to tell it to share that with them so there's no doubts about how you believe in them and that goes for family members and for loved ones in in relationships as well you know um so yeah i don't know i just yeah that's that's, you know like if i get really personal about it and i don't want to like diminish in any way people's feelings of loss but i can certainly flash back to when my dad passed away yeah we did the collection of the music that he liked you know and we were just you know we had kind of like mm-hmm. i, I kind of had to give a little speech you know because i'm like a you know i'm a teacher i'm you know it's more it was more comfortable for me to speak than my brother you know it's like more like in the in the range of the work that i do right and i i didn't want to get up there yeah. and cry and talk about all the the I don't know, those more emotions and not that I didn't feel them. I wanted to just kind of like celebrate the person. My dad liked uh, the Bob Seeker yeah. song Night Moves, which is basically about teenage mm-hmm. kids having sex. <laughs> so like, that's the song that we played. You know, it was like, okay. You know, it was like, it's a little of that, you know, it's a, uh, I don't know, a little of that Irish wake thing going on probably. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Mm. All right. I got, I got yeah. one one last little yeah, thing ahead. if you have time for it. Or do you, you got to bounce? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I got about, about three Okay, so minutes. the last one is just to talk about, you know, the honesty in all of this, which is, I thought there's some interesting things in the Taoist tradition, which is just about um, honesty and how, you know, relationships tend to fail. <laughs> you know, when you're looking for people to connect with, interesting little part about the Taoist tradition where they kind of acknowledge, like, it may not work. And, you know, and you might have these, you know, you think you have a spiritual bond with someone and it falls apart. And you don't always see that addressed as honestly. You were talking about saying mantras for people. And I have someone I'm really close to that I wound up, you know, um, we had a falling out and, you know, we haven't seen each other in a number of years. Not really anything happened bad between us. Yeah. But um, uh, and so I still say mantras for that person, you know. So you sort of acknowledge that the people that you're close with, you may not always, even if they're not, even if they don't die, you know, you might just lose lose touch with them, mm-hmm. lose contact with them. So in this, in yeah. this Taoist tradition, yeah. okay, I'll tell you, it's a funny story. I was reading this old Taoist book and I was like, not an old Taoist book, I was reading kind of a modest, modern, a modern book. And it, it was, I was reading it and it just got to this weird part where he's, he's sort of talking about his sexual practice, the author of the book. Um, I just was reminded mm-hmm. of this one. Solo, solo? Or solo so or at partner? first he was talking about solo and how he's trying to bring, build up his sexual energy. We're going to have episodes about that too, the technicalities of this. Um, and then he said, "Impaired practice," 
And at a certain point, he says, like, I began to meditate with a female partner. But then it says, after a short time, she discontinued our practice, period. Then he says, I failed again, period. <laughs> it is preferable <laughs> to have a permanent partner, period. And I remember reading the book going, like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> In the middle of this tech, the middle of I this failed. technical book on, like, Taoist meditation, there's this really super personal part. And I was like, what the hell is that? But mm. you learned, uh, learned there's a whole tradition in Taoism of writing stuff like that, which I didn't know at the time, <laughs> where they just acknowledge like, well, shit may not work out. So as another example from one of the old books, this is from the 600s, he says, it is truly more difficult to find a practice companion than an adept. Alas, I have traveled huh. all over the realm, but have not been able to find any comrades who can join me in exploring the mysteries of the chamber practice. I shall keep my eyes them. So, you know, it's sort of like this idea that you want to find spiritual compatriots. And uh, the Taoist yeah. tradition just says, hey, it might not be that easy, you know? So just to acknowledge that part too, you know, there's a whole tradition talking about that. Now the tantric advice to close the episode on a positive note is, uh, especially if you do have like, sometimes we're talking about things for people who actually have like tantric initiations and things like that. You know, but just in general, the advice is, don't give, don't give up on the path, even if this happens. Don't give up on the path and working with your emotions, your attachments. They, they give this advice, you know, even if you, it, it's a rocky road, you can have ups and downs, like, you know, we all have in our modern lives, you know, we're gonna ride these ups and downs, but don't give up, you know, just keep working on it and keep working on yourselves. Yeah, it's interesting, there's the acknowledgement on the one side and then there's the acknowledgement, like still don't give up, you know, still search the realm, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I think, mm -hmm. you know, it's nice to acknowledge that piece that they're they're acknowledging that the relationships fail. What do you think about that thing as a as a closeout? You got thoughts on that one? Obviously, relationships don't work, right? A relationship more far more relationships fail than succeed, <laughs> you know. But I mean, this kind of goes with you know what we were just saying in terms of loss, and that that's that's part of it, you know. And the highs aren't as high without the lows. That's just a fact. And so it's about managing of each of them. And I think going even looping back further to the beginning of our discussion, the whole, you know, one of the, the reasons for talking about non-attachment is to not be on such a polar ends of things, not to be so low or not to be necessarily so high. And so I understand why people would try to be non-attached to these things. However, however, this sort of pulls away from the richness of life. I mean, if you were to go watch a movie and there are probably some movies like this that never really have a peak or a trough, you know, they're just kind of like a, a, a flat story. But the stories that people really, you know, get involved with are the ones where it's like really, really deep, you know, and your connections to the characters are, are, are true. And it's, it's heart wrenching, you know, to see them have anguish, you know? And so, you know, I, I'm certainly not, uh, a proponent of living an extreme life of, you know, like extreme poverty and richness, you know, just in order to have an experience. However, it is to say you don't want to like separate yourself from living and living means lo losing and gaining, you know, people, things, all that kind of stuff. And so as, as, you know, as practitioners, how do you use these energies, not just to be as, as an experience, but to use them to your advantage to learn from so that as you go forward and you grow, 
you actually are are growing in a positive way you know if we can stick on one side of the pol polarity here you know? yeah yeah what really strikes me about it in the end i think because it is you know they have these kind of like precepts once you engage and practice you know and precepts is a religious sounding word but it's just sort of like uh they're kind of guideposts i guess you would say and I, they have one like mm -hmm. don't give up on the path of working with your attachments don't do that you know um because i so you get the idea that the advice is there because they they know there's going to be difficulties you know there might be times like this poor guy in this book i failed again you know mm. but um you know uh don't give up you know, uh, you know, uh, they're acknowledging the, the difficult part, but they're also giving the encouragement, like, you know, keep pursuing your path. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a, I think that's a great place to end it. And, uh, it's a great place to end it because, uh, I have to go. So, you know. <laughs> I was trying to time it out for a big conclusion, so, right. You know, the, the episode comes to yeah, a conclusion. Yeah. That's it. Like that's, a good Marvel movie. We ended on a high note. That's right. We ended on a high note. No, and no, uh, no, no, no spoilers for the next one. Um, so anyways, uh, but, uh, you know, Eric, I think that you're, you're good yep, for today. Good. All right. Perfect. All right. Well, Eric, thanks again for, uh, you know, working with me and, and doing this and, and thanks for everybody who is listening, whether you're, you know, checking us out on a regular basis or once in a while, definitely appreciate, um, you giving our, our efforts, uh, a listen and, you know, give us some of your time, some of your life. It's definitely, we, we appreciate it for sure. Uh, if you find it useful, you know, please feel free to share it. And other than that, um, you know, keep loving and losing, man. That's it. You know, we're just doing the best that we're doing here as well and, and trying to share some things that we find useful for ourselves. And, and hopefully that has some value for whoever's listening is live. So for Eric, this is Daniel. Thanks for listening to Gin and Tantra. Peace. Uh -huh.